Well, we are in uh, our second week now of a new series we're calling Know God, and we, we launched into it last week, uh, just beginning to, to uncover the topic of the fact that sometimes our knowledge of God and the God that we think we know is actually no God at all, and we've, we, we've, we've been duped or deceived into, into getting the wrong details about God, and we learned how if you get certain details wrong about who he is, it can set you up and kind of just train wreck the whole thing. Uh, sometimes the small details really make or break our case. I was reminded of this this past week. I came into my office uh, after I was at a funeral, and then I came back into my office, and uh, there was a surprise waiting for me on my desk. I couldn't believe it. Uh, on my desk was an iPad case. Yeah. I walk in, says to Pastor Brent Ingersoll, God bless. I was like, no, no freaking way. One of my beautiful church family felt it in their heart to give their pastor an iPad. I was at a funeral. This is the best. This is amazing. So I go and I pick it up. I look at it and I inspect it. The weight's there. Feels good. Feels like this is really happening. And I open it up, and feeling a little bit like my kids do on Christmas when I give them clothes. It's a book. Don't put a book in an iPad case, people. For real. Like, okay, give your pastor a book. Great. Glad you were thinking about me. You know, just fun fact, though. Like, if you give me a book, you better have thought about it. It's kind of like showing up to your dentist with a, with a drill saying, use this one. Right? Like, I do this for a living, all right? So... If you give me a book, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expect that you put the work in and you thought about it. So some of you have given me some really good books, but it's a book. Great. Okay. Earth's Last Empire, The Final Game of Thrones. It's a book on Revelation. All right. Okay. Well, who gave it to me? So there's a letter inside and I take the letter out and I read it. There's no name. I've learned in my 13 years of pastoring that if you give me a letter with no name, generally uh, good things happen. So... Uh, I start to read it. Attention, Pastor Brent Ingersoll. It says, uh, I was watching TV and the Lord spoke to me. Okay, what did he say? Said, I, he said, I truly believe that God spoke to my heart. Give this book to Pastor Brent. He is my prophet. Pastor Brent, I believe you and the members of Kingsway Assembly... have taught and shown the community what love is. Well, could you, uh, could you let God know I don't work at Kingsway Assembly? Would you be able to do that? I thought that was funny. It was like so close, but so far, right? I was listening, but then I was like, oh, maybe this, I need to go drop this off at the pastor at Kingsway this week. I'll leave it on his desk. Uh, I, you know what? I, I might read it. The way I definitely would read it is if you had the iPad in the box as well, and you said it's locked, and the passcode is hidden and encrypted in the pages of the book, and you've got to find it. Then I might, uh, might put the work in. I might check it out. Who knows? But uh, I thought that was funny. Like, so close. I was kind of listening, and I was like, oh, you had that detail, and it kind of threw the whole thing off. That's kind of what we're getting at here, that, that sometimes the smallest details that we get wrong about who God is can kind of just destroy our whole concept 
can kind of undermine it. And so we've learned even last week how important it is that we get this one thing right about our knowledge of God, that it's actually how the enemy tries to attack us. He tries to set up deceptions and strongholds, tries to block us from the knowledge of God. And so we learned how crucial it is, but we also learned the good news of Jesus, that Jesus actually is our way to ensure that our theology is lined up properly. That we, we learned that Jesus himself is perfect theology. That if you want to know what God is like, you need to look at Jesus. And so we start there, we end there, and we filter through the person and work of Jesus. That's how we know what God is like. But we don't want to just stop at surface level. That we want to actually start diving in over the next few weeks to find out what this God is truly like. How many of you know that, that knowledge is connected to intimacy? I was reminded that this week, uh, my wife and I celebrated our 13th wedding anniversary. Can't believe it. 13 years. Lucky 13. We've gone 13 years being married. It's been the best 13 years of my life. But I was remembering like when we were dating, you know, the things that attracted me to Melanie were, were surface level, if you know what I'm saying. But then after I got to know this girl, I wanted, I wanted to like find out more and more about her. I wanted to know what she liked. I wanted to know what made her happy, what made her cry, what made her laugh. And I remember like when we were dating and even engaged every night, we'd talk on the phone for an hour. We, we, were, we were long distance for a while. We'd talk on the phone. I emailed her every night and she emailed me back, back on like uh, Hotmail. Anybody use Hotmail back in the day? And MSN Messenger. We fell in love over MSN Messenger. That dates us. Uh, but I remember just the hours and hours and hours putting into our relationship, trying to get to know one another at a depth and at a certain level to push past the surface. And those of you who are married, you know what I'm talking about. The way that you love your spouse now, if your marriage has developed in a healthy way, should be much greater than it was when you first met. Uh, the surface level attraction is probably still there. It is for me anyway, if you know what I'm saying. But there's a depth now to my relationship with my wife that I didn't have before. And that's because over the years, I've gotten to know who she is. And I love, I love her for who she is. And, and the, thing about, the reason we want to do this series is for a lot of us, our relationship with God's surface level. We are attracted to the beauty of God, maybe the beauty of the gospel. It isn't a beautiful thing. It's, a, it's mind-boggling to think that God who created the universe looked upon us in our helpless state, sent his son to, to, to offer us life that we couldn't give for ourselves, forgiveness and mercy. But if you press people and you ask, hey, what do you love about God? What do you love about God? Most people will just say something like, I love, I love, his, I love his grace. Love his grace. I love his mercy. Which, yeah, we do. But a lot of us don't have any knowledge be about God beyond the fact that he's good and he, and he forgave us of our sins. And so for the next few weeks, we want to start to just delve in and dive into to the attributes of God and what he's like to actually spend some time looking at, at, at who he is and how do we understand him better. And hopefully as we do that, God will renew our minds and change our lives. And so today I want to ask three questions. Today we're going to ask and we're going to just kind of dive into this topic of who he, who he is. And we're, we're going to spend most of our time today asking the question, who or what is he? How do we define God? What is the revelation? If we're going to start to kind of contextualize who God is, how are we going to do that? And then once we get an answer for that, we're going to go to the next question. We're going to ask, well, what does this mean for us based on who he reveals himself to be? What does this mean for us? And then we're going to ask the question after that, how is this good news? Because we set it up last week that all of this has to funnel through and be backed up by the person and work of Jesus. And so if Jesus is involved, it's good news. Amen. So we're going to look at this and it's going to tell us the truth, but ultimately, hopefully, we're going to leave here feeling like, wow, that's really, 
really good news. So if you have a Bible, I want you to get it, open it up. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 6 today, and we're just going to hang out in that one spot. It's going to be, uh, we're going to go to the deep dive. We're going to do a Bible study. Seriously, get your Bible open, open it up on your phone, follow along. This is going to be a great time to take notes, and we're going to do a kind of a deep dive Bible study. Anybody good with that? All right, good. Valley Campus, West Campus, Halifax. And we're going to actually like look at how loaded the Bible is. Sometimes you can do like a 30,000 foot view and get something out of the Bible. But sometimes the best stuff comes when you learn to dig a little bit word for word. And so we're going to do that today. And we're going to look at one of the most famous pictures of God. It's in Isaiah chapter 6. Now through the whole Bible, the whole Bible is the revelation of the word. It's, it's actually this whole book is set up to reveal who? Jesus, yeah, Jesus. It's, it's set up to, to point to Jesus. The whole book is about Jesus. From beginning to end, it's to reveal the Son to us. But throughout, there are different spots where it gives us different windows into the nature of God, into what he's like. And one of the most famous ones is right here in Isaiah chapter 6. And so let's just start reading it and let's see what it has to say. Verse 1 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now let's pause there for a second. He says, I saw the Lord. What does he mean by I saw the Lord? Now we are in a book called Isaiah and he was a prophet. And prophets were those who, and still are, those who hear what God is saying. And then they're responsible to speak it out, to actually tell God's people what they saw or heard. That's what a prophet is. And now when you read the prophetic books, a lot of us can't really understand it because there's weird imagery and there's weird language. And we're kind of like, what does this even mean? And the reason that the prophetic kind of comes in that kind of packaging isn't because prophets are just weird. It's because they are trying to put human language and explain that which is inexplicable. And so if you read the descriptions of God and the prophets, they, 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 they see something, but it's coming in a packaging to help us understand what God is like. This isn't just God is this way. It's, it's pushing our minds to try to conceive something that is true about him. That's what a revelation is. It's pointing us to the attributes of God. If you read some of the other ones, if you read the book of Daniel, for instance, in the book of Daniel, Daniel has a vision of Jesus. And he doesn't say, I saw Jesus. He doesn't describe him perfectly. He just says, I saw one like a son of man, like a son of man. Why does he say that? Because that's the closest he could do to putting words on it. Do you see? If you read the book of Revelation, you read the descriptions of the throne room, you read the descriptions of the, of the, the heavenly creatures, John is saying, I saw a, a beast like an eagle. It was like an eagle. Was it an eagle? No, no it wasn't, but it was kind of like an eagle. So, you, so, you're, so you're, when you read the prophetic, it's grasping at human language to try to give us a mechanism to understand something that we cannot possibly understand. So that's what's happening here in Isaiah 6 as we read it. So he's saying, I had a revelation. We don't, we don't know where he was, what was going on. We're not sure if he was there in body or in spirit. We don't really know any details other than this. This great and famous prophet had this life-changing encounter where he saw, he had a vision of who this God is. So he says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Bring, bring up verse 1. I saw the Lord. And now he says this. He was high and exalted. Now, he is already loaded. If you were a Hebrew and you were reading this, you were going to get what he was saying. But for us who are, who are English-speaking or maybe French-speaking, but you can also speak English, uh, you know, or whatever your language is, we have to dig a little bit deeper here. 
When he says, I saw the Lord, the word for Lord in there is Adonai. And that was the Hebrew word for the Lord Most High. It was the word that they used to talk about God's highness, that he is above all things, that there is none beside him. He's in a category all unto himself. So when it says the Lord, he's saying, I saw the Lord Most High. Picture the highest heights you can possibly fathom. Take, go to the far reaches of your imagination, and that's where the Lord is. is. I saw the Lord Most High. And then what's he say? I saw the Lord, Adonai, the Lord Most High, and he was what? Say it again. High. So I saw the Lord, and he was, I saw the Lord, and he was most high. And then I saw him, he was high. So he's saying high and higher still. You see that? It's a double, it's a, it's a hyperbole. He's saying as high as your mind can reach, there he was, and then he was higher yet. And then look what he says. And exalted. Some of your translations, if you have the NLT, I think it says, and lifted up. I saw the Lord most high, high and higher still. So he's trying to, in this language, he's grasping here, but he's trying to get you to understand, you cannot imagine the height in which this God is. You can't imagine. Go to the far reaches of your mind and then let it reach all the way again and then do it again for good measure. He's just, he's using hyperbole on hyperbole on hyperbole for how high and exalted this God is. There's no one in his realm, no one in his category. He's just high and high and higher still. It's kind of like for those of us who maybe you're like Discovery Channel nerds. Any Discovery Channel nerds? Anybody ever get on like a YouTube vortex where you're just watching videos about the cosmos? Anybody? Wow. Okay. Uh, try it sometime. West? You ever like, you ever see like, uh, you know, some of those videos that shows the scope and scale of the universe? And what, what happens when you start, it starts expanding, your head just starts tilting, right? And it's, I can't even wrap my head around it. Like, do you know how large the earth is? The earth is so enormous. You ever stood at the foot of a large mountain? Anybody ever been near like uh, maybe Mount Washington or you've seen uh, maybe Mount Rainier? You've seen some of those high, high mountains. Anybody ever seen a large mountain? You know those topographical maps? You know, like a globe and you can touch it and it shows like the mountain ranges, like the Andes and the Himalayas and it shows the, the Alps and the Rockies. Anybody ever seen those? Well, that's actually like really extreme. It's just there to show you that there's mountains. But in actuality, if you were to hold a globe and you were to touch the actual earth that size, the earth is so large that in spite the highest heights of the highest mountains, it would feel smoother than the smoothest cue ball. That's how wide the earth is. That's how enormous the earth is. That, that even the height of K2 or the height of Mount Everest, you wouldn't even feel it on your finger if you were to slide your hand around the earth if you were that large. That's how enormous the earth is. Doesn't that start to just tilt your head? And then when you think, you zoom out a little bit more, there are a million, you could fit a million earths inside the sun. A million. Not 10 not a hundred, not a thousand earths, a million in our sun. And then you zoom out a little further and you realize that in our galaxy alone, in the Milky Way galaxy, there are estimated a hundred billion suns 
in our galaxy. Uh, right? And you know what blows my mind when you're looking at the Milky Way? I'm, you're in it right now. Like, does that not blow your mind? You keep zooming out further and further, and you realize that of the 100 billion galaxies in the Milky Way, that they estimate that there are actually 100, or 100 billion suns in the Milky Way, they estimate that there's actually 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. Yeah! Right? And then you, you hear stuff like they think that they've only observed about 4% of the observable universe. And you just, your mind just starts. That's the best we can do in understanding what it means when he says, I saw the Lord high and high and farther and farther at the far reaches of the universe, beyond the 100 million suns, beyond the 100 million galaxies, beyond the 4% of the observable universe, he is high and exalted, and then exalted on top of that and exalted again. That's, that's what he's getting at. He is high above all things. Let's keep going. It says, I saw the Lord. Are you with me? We're gonna do the deep dive today? All right, it says, I saw the Lord high and exalted. Now what's it say? Read it, seated on a throne. Let's try that again. I was like, he was seated on a throne. Yeah, let's stop there. He was seated on the throne. Now, what is he trying to describe? He's, again, he's using language that we sort of understand to help us understand that which we cannot. And so he says he's seated on the throne. What is he trying to allow us to see? And I kind of created a word. He's trying to get us to see God's isness. That he just is. That he's seated. What does it mean that he's seated? It's describing something. That he doesn't need to tend to anything. There's nothing he has to go get done. There's no one tending to him. There's nothing he needs from anyone at any time ever, ever. He's seated. He is, he is seated. He is secure. That's what that's getting at. He's not up pacing the halls of heaven. He's not trying to figure out, eh, what am I going to do tomorrow? He's not trying to get back to email. He's not trying to respond to texts. Isn't that voicemail he's got to do? Yeah, I got a to-do list. And a galaxy long. Like he's not, he's seated. He's, he is there are some theological terms that, that, uh, that we can kind of wrap our heads around. What Isaiah is trying to help us understand is that he's seated, and then he says what? On a, what does that represent? Rule. Authority. So picture the highest, highest, highest heavens. And there he is seated in absolute sovereign authority absolute authority. There is no one questioning his rule. There is no force coming to compete with him or trying to take him down. I know some of you, like we, we grew up maybe with this ideology about, well, there's God and there's Satan and there's darkness and there's light. And it's like, you know, the, the Jedi and the Sith. <laughs> but but God, don't, don't, don't read your interpretation of good and evil into the Bible and into who our God is. This is not equal and opposite. Like I know some of y'all like grew up in church. Anybody remember Carmen? Remember the champion? 
Does anybody remember that? Some of you, some of you who just like you're new to church, go Google the champion and have a great time. Um, awesome. Christian subculture at its finest. Uh, but it's this story, it's this song that like portrays the story of like Jesus fighting Satan and Satan knocks Jesus down and Jesus is like, oh no, he's down. Is he gonna get up? And then he gets back up because he's Jesus and he knocks out Satan and yeah, Jesus is the champion. But it was close. It was close there for a minute. I wasn't sure how it was gonna play out. That is not biblical. It's never close. Satan is created. God is not worried about what Satan is doing. It's not a contest. Satan is not, you know, the the forces of Mordor coming in to try to take down the good. Again, (laughs) such a dork. We, we, but we superimpose that, don't we? Because there is good and there is evil and we do see these forces and we do live in a battlefield and spiritual warfare is real, but make no mistake about it. He's seated. He's not plotting his attack. He's not building up his defense. He's not trying to figure out what the schemes of the devil are up next. Like this is not a contest. There's God and everything else. There is no contest. He's seated in absolute sovereign rule. Uh, The word Adonai actually translates to sovereign Lord as well. Doesn't that encourage you? Like when you think, like think think through the gospel. That's maybe helping us understand what Paul was talking about where he says, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? If God is on my side, we win. He's already won. So doesn't that like just, just, just help? Just as you lift your mind up to the Lord most high and you see him seated on the throne, all of a sudden, the things that are so all-encompassing, your cancer diagnosis or your loss or your grief or your pain or your job search or your, or your disappointment or your struggling marriage, all of a sudden, those high towering issues just seem ding, to God. Isn't that amazing? He's seated. Someone needs to hear that today. Like, you think it's close. You think God's up in heaven, like, pacing the floor, wondering how your situation's gonna pan out. No, he's seated in sovereign rule on the throne of all things. It's incredible. I'm way more excited than y'all are. He is seated. There's a few theological terms. You wanna geek out for a minute? Can we do that? All right, yes. We have been, Pastor. You've referenced Mordor. You've referenced the Jedi and the Sith. Yes, we're nerding out today. So what does it mean? A couple theological terms that he's seated on the throne. One, the fact that he's seated means he's self-sufficient. God needs nothing, ever, anytime, ever. He needs nothing. You can't do anything that he doesn't already possess. You can't give him anything that he already doesn't have. He doesn't need anything. Even our worship. Sometimes we think, because we read the commands of the Bible, that we should worship God, that, that God somehow needs it. No, God, God is self-sufficient. It means he has everything he needs. So worship actually is for us. It's for what we need to worship him. More on that later. The fact that he's seated isn't just that he's self-sufficient. He's also all-powerful. God doesn't have power. God is power. And that's very different. God does not have a scope to his power. There's not like he's this powerful and he's more powerful than you and I. That's actually to not think properly about how God is. God is power, meaning there are no limits to it. He just, that's what he is. 
He is power. Uh, A.W. Tozer in The Knowledge of God, he says it like this. If you haven't got that book, you should order it. Get it on Amazon. It's a top five for sure. He says this. A.W. Tozer says, Since God has at his command all the power in the universe, the Lord God omnipotent can do anything as easily as anything else. Isn't that amazing? Some of you think like your situation is a big situation. That's as easy for him as any situation. That's why we pray big prayers. It's not because we don't think these are big issues. It's just because God is a big God. Man, I thought, I thought there'd be more amens there. Yeah. All of his acts, listen to this. Like just, just imagine this. Even close your eyes and think. All of God's acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for renewal of strength. He doesn't get tired. All the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in undiminished fullness in his own infinite being. Yeah, he's omnipotent, all-powerful. Let that encourage your heart today. He's more powerful than you think he is. He's got more capacity. He's got infinite capacity. There is nothing impossible. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, for man, some this is impossible. But for God, what? All things are possible. Exactly. Because there's nothing greater than his power. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. The fact that he's seated implies that he's not needing to go get information. He doesn't need to go study. He's not on Wikipedia. He's not trying to find out the score. He's not, he, he, he doesn't need information. He already has it. He has all information. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. means he's omniscient. He knows how things will work out. He knows all the, the ways to optimum uh, realization. Like he is completely all-knowing. There is nothing he does not know. He knows all. He doesn't have an IQ. Do you know that? An IQ is an intelligence what? Quotient. Means it, it means it's how much you have. God is intelligence. That's what he is. Again, when we're talking about the attributes of God, these aren't things that he has. This is what he is. That's a very big distinction because it takes the limits off of how we understand him. The fact that he's seated on the throne. Uh, look at this. His omniscience. I love Tozer says this. God never discovers anything. God's never surprised. When you woke up and you were surprised at the diagnosis, God wasn't like, oh man, I can't even believe it. Never. He doesn't discover anything. God never discovers anything. He is never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, ever. That's who he is. He's omniscient. He's seated on the throne. It means he's self-existent. It means he's uncreated. He's uncreated. He just always is. He always is. He, he, he wasn't made. That's hard for us to understand, isn't it? We're like, well, who made God? That's creature thinking. Because we are created, we think something has to have a creation. Something has to have an origin. God has no origin. He just always is. He's self-existent and he's uncreated. He's uncreated. One more, one more term. He's immutable. What does that mean? Immutable. It means he does not mutate. It means he never changes, ever. He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, a million years from now, when time stops and we are in eternity and we are outside of time as well, he is unchanging. He never, ever changed. Malachi says, I am the Lord. I change not. 
I don't change. Shouldn't that encourage the church to, to realize, like, if he said it, if it's in here, it didn't change his mind on it. That's why we surrender to the authority of the word, because God knew what he was doing when he made certain commandments. And he didn't change his mind. It also encouraged us to, to, to know that, that God doesn't change how he thinks about us. Isn't that cool? Because some of us convince ourselves, well, based on what I did last week, here's what God's going to think. God cannot change his mind. He can't change his opinion. That's why James says that, that every good and perfect gift comes from God because that's who he is. And he says he does not change like shifting shadows. What does that mean? It means that God doesn't wake up cranky. God doesn't need a soul day. Right? God doesn't, he's not down. No, just a little blue. Raptor's lost. You know, like... He doesn't get down or up. He just is. He never changes. Like, let that encourage you. Some of you, maybe you just showed up back to church for the first time in a long time. You're thinking, well, I got to get God back on my side. He's already on your side. And no matter what you did, you didn't change his mind about you. Isn't that incredible? Like, let it wash over you. Like, Lord, thank you that I can't, no matter how bad I screw up, and no matter how frail I am, and no matter how far I fall, I can't change what you think about me. That's amazing. That, that should encourage somebody. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up, high and exalted, seated on the throne. There's another description. Look what he says. He says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, again, he's using language to help us imagine, help us understand what's he talking about. He's saying, you've seen glory. But in ancient, in, ancient, in ancient times, like if they would have read this, what was the train of a robe? For us, it's, it's something you're going to trip over. Uh, in their time, though, the train of a robe actually represented majesty, represented splendor, represented how rich and wealthy you are. The, the, the more power you have, the more magnificent you are, the more famous you are, the bigger the train of your robe for any royalty or kings or rulers. The, the longer the robe, the bigger, the bigger you know, swag you have. That's basically how they understood it. So when it says the train of his robe filled the temple, what is he trying to get us to understand? He's saying, you've seen glory and you've seen majesty. You've seen maybe some really long trains. You've seen some pretty magnificent people on earth. But here's the deal. When I saw the Lord, I saw a glory that the temple could not contain. In fact, I didn't see where the glory ended. It just kept going and going, and it actually spilled out of the temple. That's incredible. He's saying there is no end to the glory and majesty and splendor and beauty and brilliance of our God. It never ends. His glory goes on and on and on and on forever and ever and ever. Maybe that's what Revelation's getting at when it shows the angelic host and humans gathered around the throne singing glory to God, glory to the lamb who was slain forever and ever. Why do we do it? Because his glory goes on forever and ever and ever. He's that splendid, that magnificent. So Isaiah is grasping at language to help us wrap our heads around what we cannot possibly understand. He's saying it's like this. Imagine the highest, highest, highest throne and the most authoritative being. Imagine it. And you're just grasping at the fringes here. 
You're just grasping at the fringes of what is actually true. Imagine the most majestic glory and brilliance in other, other spots in the Bible. In the book of Revelation, it says, you know, I, I, he, he, he radiated like jasper and carnelian, whichever, whatever that is, but some majestic stone. Again, they're using language to help us understand. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. And what Isaiah wants you to get, don't miss this. He's saying, you've seen kings and you've seen glory and you've seen thrones and you've seen power on earth, but nothing, nothing compares to the power and glory and majesty and strength of the Lord. I saw the Lord. Now let's, let's get a little clearer vision because we're going to understand how we're going to define the indefinable. Because at this point, Isaiah is basically saying, there are no words to what I can say he is. I'm grasping at human imagery to help you try to wrap your head around who this God is. But we need revelation in our hearts and our minds. And so it goes on and it gives us a little more picture. Because sometimes the best way to understand something is to understand what's happening around it. And now look what happens. Watch. It says in verse 2. So I saw the Lord and there he was. He's high and exalted, seated on the throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 2. Let's look at it. And it says, and then above him there were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now let's just pause there. What are seraphim? From what we can understand in the Bible, uh, seraphim are angelic beings and likely the highest beings in creation. Uh, seraphim translates in the Hebrew burning ones. It's likely that they're, they're either so brilliant or they look like they're burning. And they are actually the ones, they, they tend closest to God. They're actually the beings that are closest to God. And now they're, they're the most magnificent things you can ever wrap your head around. Again, there are some creatures that you read about in heaven in Revelation that we just kind of can't even begin to conceive of. But, but here's the deal. The Bible paints this picture of the seraphim as these magnificent beings and don't miss what was happening. As they were saying, holy, 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 as their voices rung out, what was going on? The place was shaking. That's how powerful they are, is what Isaiah is trying to get you to see. How magnificent and how brilliant in their own right. Un unfallen. They are created, but they haven't fallen. They are sinless. They are perfect. If one of them showed up and, and just appeared here, all of us would be tempted to bow down and worship it. At very least, we'd be terrified. At the sound of their voice, the building shakes. Can you imagine? It's painting this picture of these heavenly beings and they are not confident in the presence of the Lord Most High. Understand this. They would never fear any powers on earth. They wouldn't fear anything. They wouldn't fear Satan. They wouldn't fear you and I. They wouldn't fear uh, North Korea. They wouldn't fear Donald Trump. They wouldn't fear any of that stuff. But in the presence of the Lord Most High, what are they doing? They're covering their eyes. They can't even look upon him like the most magnificent holy beings, the most magnificent sacred beings, so powerful and so majestic in their own right, they can't even gaze upon the brilliance of who this God is. They can't even look. It says they're covering their feet. What does that mean? They can't even stand in his presence. The ground is so sacred. And it says forever and ever, 
back and forth, they keep saying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What's his glory? The glory is the radiance of his holiness. Why does it say the earth is filled with his glory and not the earth is filled with his holiness? Because the glory is the radiance of the holiness of God. It's the manifestation of the holiness of God. This gives us a definition. They, they say it. They say that God is what? Here it is. Here's the word. If you're going to use a word to define God, they said it. They said it three times over and over and over again. God is holy. And I'll put three exclamation points there because they don't say it once. They don't say it twice. Uh, the Jews would actually reserve like hyperbole. They would reserve like that, that just for very rare cases where they would say something and then repeat it again to kind of give it just this absolute kind of hyperbolic, you know, pressure. They would do that. But this is like a, a, a not just one superlative, it's actually a triple superlative. He's holy, holy, and holy again. Uh, the word holy in here actually translates as sacred and set apart. It, it, the word holy is, is they're saying you're sacred and set apart. You're sacred and set apart. You're sacred and set apart. What's that mean? It means there is none like you. There is none beside you. You are in a category all of your own. And the word holy is the only word we can use to say something that cannot be held by a word. English can't hold it. Latin can't hold it. Hebrew can't hold it. So they, they say, you're holy, you're holy, you're holy. Now it's so important to look like they're covering their eyes, they're covering their feet, they're intimidated. Like, like this God we serve is so powerful. That's why it says like when, when, when the Lord returns in power, it's going to be a great and terrible day. Why? Because he's, there's a level of this power that's terrifying. You ever been around something that's, that's so powerful, it just makes you like, huh? Like if you see an electric current, you ever been near a power line even? And you're like, you run away, like there's a power line down, like there's that power. It, it causes, causes that intimidation. You know you're starting to see the real God if you get a little bit intimidated. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They're, they're intimidated, but they're also infatuated. They can't look away. It's so magnificent. It's so brilliant. Holy means sacred and set apart, but there's actually connotations with it. It also means, like I heard one theologian say, one of the best ways to understand the word holy is like it's, it's awe-inspiring grandeur. It's that rush you get when you are so overwhelmed by the power and magnificence of something. Have you ever stood on a cliff? Maybe like uh, there's, there's some really cool cliffs on the backside of Gramanan Island. You should go check it out. And on those cliffs, like there's no railing or anything. So you literally, if you wanted to just jump, you could. Don't judge me. I'm not like... For, you ever have that feeling, that rush that comes in? You're like, wow, if I jumped, I'd die, right? Y'all looking at me like, dude, you need to get checked out. <laughs> no, that feeling, like, or maybe I had it one time when we were on a cruise. My wife and I took a, took a cruise. I remember being out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, no land around, and standing by the railing and thinking, if I jumped over, it would just, the ocean would just swallow me. And it's that rush of how small you are and how magnificent that is. That's what holy is trying to get to. It's that, whoa! Whew. That's the tone in heaven. 
That's the tone around the real God. So when we come to God with this kind of trite, yeah, God, what's up? That's not, you aren't seeing the real God. It's a, it's a, it's a no God. To know the real God is to be absolutely and utterly, let me just use this word, let's put our second word in here, humbled. This is the God that said, no one sees me and lives. This is the God that said, if you even step on the mountain, you'll die. It's not because he's mad. It's not because he's cranky. It's because it's who he is. He's all-consuming fire. This is why when, when, when Moses said, can I see you? God says, no one sees me and live. I, I can, I, the most I can do is show you where I just was. And even that's going to be dangerous. This is why, like, when they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant that represented his presence, those who touched it died. It's holy. It's awe-inspiring grandeur, magnificent power, no ends to it. That's who this God is. So, so one of the big takeaways I want us to walk away with today is that your God is greater than you think he is. And one of the great problems in our lives is a small view of God. It's a low view of God. The higher you lift him up, the, the more that you can make God high and lifted up in your life is the beginning where you first start to find yourself humbled. Look at, look at Isaiah's response. This is, so, this is so telling. Look what he says. He says in verse 5, so verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And then he says, woe to me, I cried. Woe. Not wow. Not even Woe. Whoa, I'm ruined. Another translation says, I'm undone. I can't be in your presence. It's just exposing how just disassembled I am. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You know you are seeing the real God if your response is not, hey, God, but it's woe is me. It's like when Peter uh, was in the boat with Jesus in the Gospels, and he has this revelation. He sees Jesus for who he is, your God. His response wasn't, wow, I get to hang out with God in my boat. God must be really into me. That wasn't his response. What was it? It was, I can't be near you. What are you doing here? I can't be near, I can't even touch your sandals. I can't be around you. You are that holy. What are you doing? That's when you know you are, you are having a revelation of who he is. He's, he's holy. He's holy. When we come to him with these flippant attitudes, try to contain him, that's a no God, N-O. The real God is high and exalted. Holy, holy, holy. And he's so magnificent that forever and ever and ever, all you can do when you see him is just respond in praise, involuntary praise. And he is absolutely wrecked and ruined. Uh, it, it, it exposes you. Here's how you know you had an encounter with the real God. It exposes your own dysfunction and sinfulness. It tells the truth. When the light of his holiness shines on you, it exposes how broken and busted you are, doesn't it? 
You didn't see Isaiah stand up and try to put on his best front. He knew there is nowhere to run. He sees right through me. I am ruined. Doesn't that confront the God of this age? Like the, you know, the, the God of pink, where like, pretty, pretty, please, don't you ever, ever feel that you're nothing less than perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, when, you really, when you really start to have a revelation of who this God is, it exposes that you are very much less than perfect. He's perfect. And we are infinitely, we fall infinitely short of that perfection. And left to ourselves, we're dead in the water. He is life. He is power. He is glory. And he's all that which our hearts know we were made for. All the things that in our lives we're going after. Some of you are chasing after glory. You want likes on Facebook. You just want the girls to compliment you on your hair or whatever that is. Or some of you, you want power. You want to get a, a better job and have more money. All that stuff. It all belongs to him. And all the stuff we chase in this life is just counterfeit. It's not real. It's all his. And when you have a revelation of who he is, it absolutely exposes your brokenness. And you realize, left to ourselves, we are done. Undone. Now watch what happens next. Here's where the good news comes in. It says in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim... So one of those, those beings next to God, one of the ones, his, his, his attendants, one of the burning ones, it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. What's the altar? The altar is the place of sacrifice. The altar is the place where wrongs are made right. The altar is the place where the desecrated is made sacred where the unholy is made holy, where the, where the flesh dies and the spirit begins to live. That's, where the, that's what the altar is. And look what it says. It says, in the presence of God was the altar. But now watch what happens. It says, the seraphim grabbed the altar. And the altar came to Isaiah. Watch. He said, he flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs, with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What just happened? There in his helpless puddle where he finally realizes who and what he is and what he really deserves, in that moment at rock bottom, what does this holy God do? He sends his glory. He sends his holiness to actually come across, to actually make the journey. Did Isaiah get to God? No. What happened? God's holiness and God's glory got to him. It came to him and touched him. And that's a picture of the gospel. It's foreshadowing what Jesus came to do. This is what John 1 is talking about. John 1 verse 4 says, We have beheld his glory. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. What does the cross say? The cross tells the truth. It says you are a sinner in need of a savior. You are broken in need of healing. 
But it also says God is so great and so holy and so magnificent that he looked upon you in your humble, helpless, broken, busted state. And he said, not on my watch. I am sending my holiness to you. I'll pay the price for you. I will raise you up. I will touch you and atone for your sin and heal your brokenness. So the gospel is, this is why Jesus said, for God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that God gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. The onus is on what God gave, not what you did. God is holy. He's so good. He says, for God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but what? To? I'll say it like it's good news. To? To save the world through him. He's the coal. He's the altar. Come to us. He's the sacrifice that died in our place. That's the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Then it says, for whoever doesn't receive him stands condemned already. It tells the truth, man. It tells the truth. Like if you live your life focused on you, you are done. Like whether you realize it or not, this is going to be the end game for you. One day the Bible says in Philippians that every knee will bow. The proudest mind, the most glorious human kings, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But here's the good news. For the one who decides and who sees in this lifetime, you are holy, you are Lord, and I am not. And for the one who humbles himself before the Lord, here's the good news. Upon your humility, God brings healing. When you humble yourself and you cry out to God and say, woe is me, I am undone and I have seen the Lord. He brings healing to your life. There's a promise in the Bible. The Bible says, says in 1 Peter 5, it says, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of the sovereign Lord, and at the right time, he will what? Say it out loud. He will. It's glory. It's that thing your heart wants. And it's so counterintuitive because you think to get it, you need to draw it to yourself. I need to go do something. I need to accomplish something. And that will get my heart. It will bring glory. But here's the thing. You need to reverse your focus. Some of you, it's like, it's like our souls. Were, it's like we were born with life in selfie mode. It's like the camera of our soul was born to, 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 to kind of look at ourselves. Can you see that in the camera? And we're walking, trying to make sense of this world, trying to find our way, trying to find the truth, trying to find glory and find meaning and find hope and forgiveness. And God says, look, if you'll just get your eyes off of yourself and fix your eyes on me, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, the glory of God will shine into your life. And that's what changes you. That's what transforms you. It's not because you, you know, you change your behavior. It's not because you became a better person. Look, you could stack a lifetime of good deeds on top of itself and fall infinitely short of the glory of God. But the moment you humble yourself and you realize the glory of God came down so that you could be filled with it. This is why it says in 2 Corinthians 3, it says, you know, 
we with unveiled faces, as we consider his glory, as we contemplate his glory, as we, as we focus on the glory of God, we are being transformed from glory to ever-increasing glory. The thing that your heart wants is found in God. You were made for the glory of God. And when you learn and you see his holiness and you humble yourself before him, he lifts you up. This is what Jesus is saying. He said it in Luke chapter 14. He says, for everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled. Everyone who exalts himself, if you try to climb the corporate ladder, you try to climb the Instagram exaltation or whatever it is, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be, say it, exalted. He does it. It's his glory. You and I were made for his glory. Here's a couple thoughts. Stand with me and I'm going to pray. Bands, you can come back. West Band, you can come back. Here's what we need to do with this. We need to fight to renew our vision of him. I guarantee your God is too small. He's greater than you think he is. He's better than you think he is. He's greater than you think he is. We need to renew our vision of him. We need to reverse our view on him. Stop making ourselves the focus of the universe. It's really easy even to like get twisted the good news of the gospel, isn't it? It's like, well, God loves me so much. He must be all about me. It's like the difference between cats and dogs, right? Like if you, if you feed a cat, if you feed a dog, you walk a dog, you look after a dog, the dog sees all that you do. And then he looks back to you and says, you're awesome. It's all about you, man. You do that for a cat and like, well, he feeds me looks after me, lets me stay here. I'm awesome. That's what a cat does, right? A lot of us, we live like that. We live like that. We need to reverse our view. Get it back on God. Start to live for his glory. You know, every day, fight for that prayer that John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus. And he says, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. And in my decreasing, I am lifted up. I receive all that I want. We need to review, we need to reverse our view, flip the camera of our souls. And then when we do that, we receive our life, receive our vitality. Let's, here, here's a prayer I wrote actually. I want, I want to read this to you. I just wrote this in, in meditating on this this week. This is a prayer that'll bring us life. God, I was made for your glory. My life was made to bring you glory. You must increase and I must decrease. Be glorified in me. In you I live. Father, would you help us? Lord, would you show us your glory? Would you show us your goodness? Give us a revelation of your holiness, one that humbles us, intimidates us, infatuates us, one that causes us to go to our knees and say, you deserve all the glory. It's yours. What am I doing trying to get it? belongs to you. And that as we humble ourselves, that would allow and open us up to receive the goodness and glory and grace that you have and that we were made for. Father, we thank you today that this is true. And we thank you that you are greater than we think you are. Let that encourage us this week. And we pray this and we praise Jesus and all God's people said, amen. 
Hey, we hope you enjoyed the message today. If you want to stay up to date, go ahead and click subscribe to follow us on YouTube. And hey, if you want to partner with us in getting these messages farther, you can go to our website and find out ways that you can give and help us get the good news of Jesus further than ever before.